Right, I think Angie and looks like Ellie are going to be taking the children into their time together. As the children prepare to leave, I, I didn't, don't you all think that maybe Josh and Chris missed their calling? You don't, don't you think we need to have more videos of Josh and Chris together? Yeah, you guys may have started something there. We may just tack on to that, and you guys may have something new you're going to be doing for us often. Huh? Underdog of the week? Oh, $100 a week. All right. All right, well, as the children are leaving out the door for their time together, we're going to turn our attention to Nehemiah. The Nehemiah today is where we begin. In fact, we're going to be in Nehemiah for the next several weeks. It will take us a few weeks to get through Nehemiah. We're not going to go through maybe the whole book, but we're going to be looking at Nehemiah for the next several weeks because Nehemiah has just a lot to offer. I mean, it's a rich text that offers prayer, which you begin talking about today. There's also fasting, rebuilding, restoration, and just so much more that we can find through looking and examining the book of Nehemiah. So as we begin, and before we do the reading today of the first chapter, which is 11 verses that we will read all the 11 verses of the first chapter, allow me to set the context and the timeline of what's happening in the book of Nehemiah. So the contextual situation is this. It is means that the exile for the, the Jewish people, for the Israelites, is over. They have been placed into exile. You may remember, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, because of the rebellious nature of the Israelites, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and capture Judah with his capital, Jerusalem, and allow them then to fall into the hands of the Babylonians, which sent the Israelites into exile captivity for quite some period of time. But as we look into Nehemiah, as we look into the Nehemiah text, we need to understand that the exile, that time in captivity is over. And the Jews that were placed in that captivity were allowed then to come home, and that occurred in 538 BC. But after they returned home, they quickly learned that the city lies in ruins. The temple is destroyed, the city walls are in shambles, and great fear is rampant among the Jewish people that once again something could happen where they may be overcome by enemy forces. So an effort is made by the Israelites to go back and to rebuild. Zerubbabel is the first to go back to Jerusalem. He goes back in 515 B.C. and reestablishes the temple. Next comes Ezra who led a group of people that returned in 458 B.C. But then after Ezra, 13 years later, was Nehemiah, who went back to Jerusalem. And what we find in Nehemiah is that he leads a third party in Jerusalem specifically to rebuild the walls. The walls are torn down, they're in shambles. So he's going about trying to restore the city with its gates and its walls. That's a major focal point of the book of Nehemiah. So then we find that to be precisely the case as we now open up to Nehemiah chapter 1 and read the first 11 verses. So stand with me this morning, if you're able to do so, as we stand together to honor the reading of the word. Nehemiah chapter 1 is 11 verses. Let's read them all together. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslev, in the 20th year. 
as I was in Susa, the capital, the Hanani, one of the, my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse four, as soon as Nehemiah heard these words, he said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen. To make my name there, they are your servants and your people, to whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And finally, Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, we just ask today as we turn our attention to Nehemiah that we begin to understand what's happening, yes, in his life. But Lord, let us see how what's written in Nehemiah can also translate into our modern day lives. So Lord, with that, we pray that your spirit will lead and guide and direct us here today, Lord, to receive the message as you chosen for us to hear today. Thank you in advance, Lord, for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me see. All right. Well, upon hearing those words and read them together, we may have a tendency to ask because the focal points seem to be upon Jerusalem. So a question may come to our mind, or we may be somewhat intrigued about what is all the fuss and the concern about Jerusalem. I mean, we mentioned during the introduction. The other peoples, Zerubbabel and Ezra, have also previously led parties back to the homeland, to Jerusalem, and have already restored the temple. And it would stand to reason, as they went back to restore the temple, that maybe they've had some other structures to be restored and are working on as well. So the question really becomes, as we look into the first chapter of Nehemiah, why is he so concerned about Jerusalem? I mean, we'll find in all the subsequent chapters that we'll study together that that concern does not diminish. In fact, it might even intensify a little bit if that is possible. So the question really becomes, why is he so concerned? And we, if we haven't noticed his concern, then we can go back to the text and make sure we see it. 
by looking again at verse 4. Because verse 4 tells us his concern. I mean, look at the way he reacts when he receives the news about what's happening to Jerusalem. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I mean, he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the question comes to my mind, and perhaps now maybe to yours. Why is he so emotional? I mean, we see mourning and weeping when we, we get to realize that he is having some great distress over what has happened to Jerusalem. And so why? I mean, why, what is it about the city? I mean, this is just the city, right? And it's not so much just, yeah, this is just a city. I mean, the, 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 the city is Jerusalem. It's not just any ordinary city. This is the holy city. And he is having, yes, uh, distress and, and anguish for what he learns happens to Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem happens to be Judah's capital. And it represented the Jewish national identity. And it was blessed as God's special presence in the temple. Furthermore, Jewish history centered around the city of Jerusalem. From all the way back in Genesis 14, when Abraham received the gift from Melchizedek, to the days in 1 Kings chapter 7, when Solomon built the original temple. All this happens in Judah, particularly in Jerusalem. It is not just any city. It is the holy city. For Nehemiah, it is his homeland. And he loved his homeland. And he wanted to return to Jerusalem to reunite the Jewish people and to remove the shame that was placed upon the once great city of God. Essentially, the Israelites returned to the city of peace and Nehemiah felt compelled to rebuild the broken down walls. Why did he feel compelled to, to repair the broken down walls? Simply because this would bring glory back to God and restore his reality and power and his presence among the people. It was his homeland, and he felt like he needed to bring glory to God and rebuild those walls. Illustrations and comparisons of what's happening in Jerusalem what Nehemiah receives and learns in his emotion is failing by comparison. But in a way to be able to illustrate what Nehemiah be feeling, it would be like one of us, any one of us who may have grew up in your hometown, whether it be Oakland City or Petersburg or Princeton or wherever you may reside and where you may be from, it'd be like you moving away for whatever period of time, an extended period of time, and as you come back to your particular homeland, to the place where you once resided, maybe the place that you were born, you find it completely desolate. I mean, in ruins completely. I mean, for emphasis, maybe we could even add that, the, that you're returning after several years away, not only finding the city in ruins and desolate, which could be described by the way of having houses way beyond repair, that are broken down of your old neighborhood. But not only is that what you see, but it's even more troubling when you begin to learn as you come back to the place where you grew up that the crime rate has increased dramatically. 
drugs is rampant among people in the city. Suicides with people, particularly children, are now the norm. Violence, murders, and shootings is commonplace. And what God destined to be the family unit was completely breaking apart and quickly deteriorating. I mean, think about it. If you should return to that particular place that you grew up, how would you react? Imagine your homeland. Imagine your homeland. If that should be the case when you've been away for a period of time and you now come back to it, would it break your heart? Would you have, like Nehemiah, as he learns about what's happened to his homeland, would you have some weeping? Would you have some sadness, some mourning? Maybe even fasting and praying to find that when you come back after being years away at your homeland, the place where you grew up is completely ripped apart. How would you react? The thing about that, as we kind of think about that a little further, is we don't really have to imagine such a scene because we know it all too real. Unfortunately, that scene that we begin to describe about our homeland, our United States of America, seems to be rampant with drugs and crime. Suicide is way more common than it should be. Violence is everywhere today. None of that is fiction. That is real. And in some way, we begin to see it or feel it nearly every day. It adequately describes our country, our homeland. So the question really becomes, what can we do about it? We see it every day, but what can we do about it? Well, the answer is in Nehemiah. And we need to follow the example that Nehemiah has so we return to the text and notice that the very first thing Nehemiah does after he learns about the devastation of his homeland and after we see his reaction, we go back to the text and look in verses 5 and 6 and we see that he prayed. He began to pray for what was giving him such an emotional reaction to the city that laid in wasteland. Verse 5, he said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He said, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. The very first thing that Nehemiah does besides having that reaction of weeping and sadness and fasting is see that he prays. He prays for his homeland. And with Nehemiah's prayer, that started all the things that will happen thereafter. We get a chance today to dissect this prayer and find three integral components of prayer that he had and we need to have in our lives. And the first one is this. In his prayer, he had the confession of sin. It's the latter part of verse 6. We read verse 5 and 6 to some extent, but the last part says this. I now pray, Nehemiah, saying to God, I now pray before you day and night, not just one time, day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
Look at the way that Nehemiah begins his prayer, confessing his sin. I mean, interestingly here, he does not just confess his sin, but for the sin of all the people. He collectively confesses the sin of his country. He says, the people of Israel, both I and my father's house, have sinned. I mean, what an interesting aspect of his prayer. I mean, it begs the question, as we see how Nehemiah begins his prayer time, it begs the question, do we pray in similar fashion? Do we, when we begin to pray, whenever that may be, do we pray for the sins of our city, for the sins of our country? Do we pray even for the sins of our family? I mean, Job, if you ever go back and read the book of Job, you'll notice in the very first chapter, list all of his children, not by name, but by number, and he prayed, made offerings for his children. So do we, do we pray? Do we pray for just our own sin? Or do we begin to pray for all the sin of our country? The example we learn from Nehemiah is here, not only do we obviously need to pray for our confessing of sin, but pray for forgiveness of the sin of our entire land. And as I begin to think about that last week, I also began to think about this. That we need, yes, to be praying for the sin of our country. And I began to think, well, what, what sin would that be? I mean, what, what sin do maybe we need as a country to confess? And the very first one that popped in my mind is abortion. Abortion. I mean, we, as a country, we have made it permissible to murder an infant in a mother's womb. And that's been happening for quite some time. I went back and looked up some statistics. I found in the 20-year time frame from 1978 all the way through 1997, roughly 20 years, there was over 1 million infants murdered per year by abortion. In 1990, it was actually almost 1.5 million. Now, as I looked at the statistics, I recognized that it's decreasing over time. I mean, yet it's met its peak back in that 20-year time frame from 78 to 97. But more recently, as the years have began to progress, it's getting less to the point where most recently it's just averaged over 600,000. Just over 600,000 per year. And that is just in our country. So it still is occurring. I mean, yeah, it's maybe half of what it used to be, but it's still happening. I mean, I know people who have confided in me that they have had an abortion. And the people who have confided in me have had great anguish. And they have told me that they had some serious regrets afterwards. I mean, the idea and concept of abortion has divided our homeland. And, and it has caused, it has had to cause grief upon God. So yes, we need to be confessing this particular sin. When, when we have our prayer time, it's not just that we confess our sin. Yes, we need to confess our sin. But also confess the sin of our country. Even if we have not done this practice. 
we need to confess the sin that occurs by the people of our country. So that's one I began to think of, abortion. A second one came to mind shortly after that, and that is same-sex marriage. According to the government in 2014, they changed the way that we view marriage. Now, we still view marriage biblically, but the United States has now changed it where there can be people the same gender to be allowed to be married. I mean, God's word, if you go back and look in Genesis chapter 2, tells us clearly that a covenant, a sacred bond existed between God, man, and woman in which way God intended. In Genesis chapter 2, it says, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and there shall be one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But our country, our homeland, the great United States of America, the best country in this entire world still today, is blatantly sinning when it comes to marriage as defined by the Scripture. And they've taken certain authoritative measures where a union is now permissible, people the same gender. As it is with abortion, whether we have practiced this or not, we still need to pray for the sin of our country. Now, there's many more I could probably go on about, but that's just two that came to mind. But perhaps you're getting the point. The point being this. As we follow the leadership and example of Nehemiah, we absolutely positively need to be praying for our sin. Yes, most definitely. But we see that Nehemiah goes further. And it begins to confess for the sins of the country, for the people in this homeland. So not just our sin, but we pray for forgiveness of the sin of our country. The first component of Nehemiah's prayer we see is confession of sin. The second component we find of Nehemiah's prayer is confession of disobedience. It happens to be verse 7, where he says in his prayer, we acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Now, disobedience is directly related to sin. In fact, disobedience is a sin. When we're not obeying the Lord God Almighty, it is sinful indeed. But we notice here that Nehemiah stresses how we should be obedient. And maybe the word really should be abide. The verb abide really means to remain and to dwell. And we need to abide, remain in his commandments. John chapter 15, verse 10, maybe says it best when John states from our Lord, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. I mean, the thing is this. As we live our daily lives as believers, followers of Christ, Christians, we're not perfect. Not one of us in this room is perfect in any way, shape, or fashion. But giving us the benefit of the doubt, I think we strive to live by God's commands. If I look at all of you and you're looking at me, I think we truly try to live by God's commands. Now, we need to narrow that. And just say it's just two commands the Lord tells us to make sure we keep. Loving God 
and loving neighbor. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 39. Jesus simplified it for us. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there's the commands in which we should be obedient to. Loving God first and foremost, and loving neighbor second. Maybe we could say even loving neighbor more than self. So now let's take these two commands, which Jesus simplified for us, in which we should be obedient to, and now examine once again our country. I mean, how is our country, our homeland, doing in keeping the commands of loving God and loving neighbor? It's a rhetorical question I present you, but a quick snapshot or a quick assessment of how we maybe think our country is doing is that maybe we think our country is not performing as good as it could be in keeping those commands. Let's take them first and foremost of loving God as an example. Are we loving God as a country? If any demonstration of loving God is by removing prayer from schools, then I suggest that maybe we are not. I mean, you probably know as well as I do, many years ago, back in 1962, the Supreme Court made the decision, perhaps fueled by Madeline Murray, who contributed to the removal of Bible reading, that in 1962, the Supreme Court decided that prayer in schools was unconstitutional. That it couldn't happen anymore. Shortly after that, in 1980, in fact, the Supreme Court ruled once more that the Ten Commandments could not be publicly displayed in school. So if you take these things in consideration of how we've removed prayer, Bible reading, Ten Commandments from public education, when our children are present, it makes us think like maybe we're not fulfilling the first command of loving God. But it goes a little further than that. Because there's also been groups that probably you've heard about over time, even though we don't hear about it as much anymore, there was once a group who had a lot of energy behind them who did not want our currency any longer to say, in God we trust. They did not want God on our money. Now, there was even another group who was trying their very best to make sure there was no mention of God in the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, Supreme Court hasn't ruled any of those such things, but there was quite a bit of energy at one particular time about those concerns. So if we take that in consideration once more, it seems that if we evaluate our country on obediently following the commands, the first command being loving God, then we're maybe not doing as good as we should be and as we could be. But what about that second command of loving neighbor? Loving neighbor. Who is our neighbor? Everyone is our neighbor. And as we can evaluate then ourselves and our country on fulfilling obediently the second command of loving neighbor, maybe we're not doing very well there either. I mean, we constantly see in the media and television all kinds and forms of racism, prejudice, bullying, all that is present in our land and in our day. It's not just something that used to occur. It's still happening. 
It's everyday part of our lives. And we constantly hear about it on the news. I mean, it actually invokes forms of protest everywhere. And perhaps you've been seeing some of those things recently. So again, whether we are practicing condoning the removal of God from schools and racism and these types of things, it shows again that we need to be like Nehemiah and praying for our country. Praying for the confession of these things that's still happening. I mean, specifically that our homeland will return to a land of putting God first and honoring his commands, his laws, his statutes. Once more, I could probably say more on a particular topic, but I'll leave it there and transition to the third component found in Nehemiah's prayer that we need to incorporate in our time together. Prayer, we have sin, the confession of sin and of obedience. And lastly, then, is the request we find in Nehemiah's prayer of repentance and revival. It happens to be verse 9 that we target. Nehemiah in his prayer time says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments, and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Like Nehemiah, our prayer needs to definitely include repentance and revival. We need to pray, we must pray, for not only our repentance, but for the repentance of those who are willfully committing the offensive acts that we see every day on the news pertaining to our country. We must pray for them. We must pray for their hearts to be softened. Pray for the chains to be broken from what enslaves them to our enemy, our adversary, Satan himself. We pray specifically that those evil hearts are cut deeply to remove the evil from it. As we pray for repentance, we also need to be praying for revival. And listen, don't we desperately need revival in our country? Absolutely, positively, we need revival in our country. But we must recognize this. In some measure, if not in every way, revival starts with the church. And the church then for revival must stop imitating the world. Many churches today believe that the way to attract people in the world today is to act and become like the world. But I disagree. I strongly disagree because I know Scripture tells us that we should not conform to the world. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, he says, Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that truth pertains not only to the church, but to every one of us, to you and to me, because we are the church. The church is not the walls in the building that you see around you. It is not the structure that we happen to be in. It is, but it isn't. The people are the church. We, the people, are the church. So as we think about how we should not conform to the world, as a church, it directly relates to every one of us how we cannot conform to the world, which means then exactly that we must stop imitating the world in its ways. 
How do we want to attract people to be different? I mean, to be like us? We must be different. We must attract them to Jesus. Be totally different. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. A little bit later on, John wrote in 3 John, he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, do not imitate the world, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. For revival to start, we have to start at home. For revival to start, we have to stop imitating the world. We have to start imitating Jesus, confessing sin, being obedient. We desperately need revival. Nehemiah recognized his people needed to be revived. Don't we recognize today that all of our country needs to be revived? I think we do. So how can we be revived? Well, we got to pray passionately first and foremost like Nehemiah. I mean, the title of this message, although I did emphasize it earlier, is that Nehemiah is the prayer that started it all. The very first thing that Nehemiah did when he learned of trouble in his homeland is that he prayed. He prayed. And if we recognize our country in the condition that it's in, we need to recognize that we need to be praying for our country as well. Everything should start with prayer. So we look upon Nehemiah particularly this day when we're together. And we recognize his prayer and how he prayed. And we should pray similarly to Nehemiah, passionately like Nehemiah, following his example. Pray fervently for our sin, for our country's sin, for our country to return to honoring God, and to pray certainly for repentance and revival. Those things should be part of our everyday prayer time. Whenever it is that you pray, and I hope that you pray every day, multiple occasions even per day, pray for these things, for your sin, for our country's sin, for one another, for returning our country to God and praying that we can be revived. In fact, let's start that prayer now. Father, Lord, we thank you today, Lord, for how we can look into Nehemiah, a text that was written oh so long ago, but how it brings us to the reality of the situation happening even to our homeland. Similarly, perhaps to some extent, what's happened to Nehemiah, we should be troubled by what we see happening in our day, in our country. And Lord, so now we gather together to come to you, to submit ourselves to you, Lord, and to pray for our sin as individuals. Lord, as a church, we want to pray for our sin and confess them to you now, Lord. But we also want to pray for these things happening in the country, in which we know is grieving you, Lord. Show favor upon this country. Bless this country, Lord. Bless us so we can, even as individuals, this church crosses, Lord, so we can return people to honoring and glorifying you and your name. We're going to pray for all of us together to heed this message and to recognize, Lord, how Nehemiah is an example for all of us to return glory to you. 
So Lord, I pray once again for confession of our sin. And I pray, Lord, you'll set this land, this country. Perhaps it starts here in Oakland City, Lord, in our church. Maybe revival starts here. But first, Lord, we revive ourselves. We confess our sin to you today, Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that you want to have a relationship with each of us. And we're thankful that you've given your son Jesus who took our sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen.